Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that celebrates the men and women who are making coastal Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. Hope you're having a great Tuesday morning. You know, the sands in Ocean Springs, by now, if you live in Ocean Springs, you've you've heard about that project. Uh, if you're on social media, you've probably heard about that project. Or maybe you've watched one of home builder Michael Butler's uh, Facebook videos. The conflict has drawn a lot of people in, uh, not just in Ocean Springs, but across the coast. And don't think for a minute that potential investors or developers in, a, in a Ocean Springs aren't watching that case closely as well. It is ultimately going to uh, tell a story about whether the city is willing to go to the mat for developers who are willing to spend millions to invest in the city to make it a better place to live, work, and play. Uh, To me, that's one of the many questions that come from this case. Essentially, legal uh, appeals by neighbors have stopped the townhouses that were planned there. And now it's possible an apartment complex could go forward, but the, uh, the neighbors are fighting that also. How how did the city and the neighbors and uh, the developer get here? And why can't we all just take a deep breath, set everything aside for a minute, and see the negative attention that the city is getting as a result of this? Can't they find a way to resolve this and do what is ultimately, ultimately best for themselves and the city? The legal costs have to be unbelievable. Uh, and the cost of the city is tremendous in more ways than, than I can list here. So let me give you just a little bit of background. Butler Homes set out to build the Sands with its partners. A principal investor was Lee Brumfield, and you've heard me talk about him on the show before. I knew Lee. His tragic death walking his dog on the boardwalk on Highway 90 recently highlighted not only his contributions to the coast, but it also highlighted that he was involved in the Sands Project in Ocean Springs. So a lot of people were aware who were aware of Lee sort of suddenly got more interested in understanding what the Sands Project was all about. Now his brother Al continues as a principal in that project, along with Michael Butler himself and his partner in Butler Homes, Josh uh, Workman. And they also have another partner, real estate uh, investor G- uh, Jennifer Gill. Jennifer is the one who actually inv- inv- introduced Michael Butler to Lee Brunfield. So the Sands in Ocean Springs started as a five and a half acre development. Now I'm gonna I'm not gonna get into a bunch of zoning and uh and codes in this conversation that's not what this conversation is about but it was r18 excuse me r1a zoned which is multifamily apartment complex essentially there was actually an apartment complex there before katrina it was 112 units so it's set idle this land is set idle for quite a while as you can imagine so the initial sands project was 41 homes they called detached townhomes essentially zero lot lines the city approved the project these homes, incidentally, were going to sell or would sell in the range of about three quarters of a million each, and it would add about $30 million to the city's tax rolls. Then, as Michael says, that they made a fatal mistake. They tried to get approval to make the project available for short-term vacation rentals. Now, that's a really contentious issue, um, not just in Ocean Springs, but really across the coast. And I think it's something that we'll eventually, as a community, set of communities, have to come to grips with. Incidentally, the city moved about five years ago to create an approach to vacation rentals, which was, uh, which was limited and it was uh, more stringent. 
So if you know Ocean Springs, if you know how Ocean Springs works, <laughs> exceptions to the rule, once the city and community come to an agreement about things, we're going to be met with significant community engagement, to say the least. Uh, a vigorous community-involved democracy has always been one of the hallmarks of Ocean Springs as a city. The late Lee Brunsfield had some experience because he owned a house in watercolor on 30A in, in Florida. For those of you who know about it, you, you get a sense of sort of the, the kind of style that this was going to be. Uh, he understood, actually, the financial benefits to investors and to the city, actually, of doing vacation rentals. But the investors and Michael Butler may not have fully appreciated the vacation rental history in the city. So they went to, to a meeting at the city to discuss the sands and making them eligible for, for short-term vacation rentals. And there was serious pushback from the community. Michael says at that meeting, they heard the feedback loud and clear, and they immediately took steps to eliminate the vacation rental idea. They took it off the table. The neighbors appealed uh, after approximately a million dollars of infrastructure was in the ground and completed. That's roads, you know, curves, you know, the infrastructure you need to start a, a, a subdivision like this. There's a lot of speculation about why the, about, about why the neighbors objected especially now that the short-term rental idea was off the table. Was, it, was there still confusion about the misinformation from the short-term rental idea? Was it about stopping traffic? Do they simply want the land to sit vacant, uh, as has been since Katrina? I guess if you have enough money, you can, you can drag things out in court and probably prevail and cause people to give up. Some people actually do that. Uh, there's history of that. Or... Was there a defining moment along the way that caused key members of the opposition to just dig in? Did it get personal? Uh, did it become about principle? Well, at the end of the day, it's just a very complicated issue. The neighbors sue the city, and they ultimately win the appeal. The city chooses not uh, to take their appeal to the Supreme Court, who could have chosen to send that to the Court of Appeals, incidentally. That's the way it works in the state of Mississippi. So right off the bat, and this is my observation, I, I think that was a mistake. I, I think this that sends a bad uh, message to investors and developers that the city's not going to fight for them. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. So now the opposition is suing to stop the apartments. <laughs> and there are countersuits. What a mess. Again, I'm interested in this because it ultimately is sending the wrong message to future investors and developers. And as I said, the costs have to be tremendous. Uh, for, you know, really across the board, all parties involved. I think of three, com three uh, quotes that I came across when I think about the kind of conflict this is in, in the community. And so after my many years as a publisher, I've seen a lot of conflict. So might these quotes apply here? The first one is from Winston Churchill. It says this, courage is what it takes to stand and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. That was Winston Churchill, of course. The next one is by Maya Angelou. People won't, won't forget, will forget what you said. They will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. You know, when you get into contentious situations like this, it's not uncommon for, for people to have their feelings and emotions all over. And I've seen cases like this, and this may be one of those cases. And the last one is by Lynn Johnston. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of quotes like this, but this one here is just so powerful in my view. An apology is the super glue of life. It can repair just about anything. I think that's true. 
With all this as a background, I've asked Michael Butler of Butler uh, Homes to join me this morning on Koshu. And uh, without any further ado, let me bring him in. He's sitting in his truck, but he's got Wi-Fi. And I want to just say good morning to you, Michael. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's been a uh, it's been a long road. It's been a long fight, you know. So I'm out here trying to trying to get the word out and just trying to let people know what's going on. I don't know how much help it's going to do in the courtroom, but but you know, I just want everybody to be aware of what's going on with the Sands Project and how much effort we've put into it. And and you made some great points about uh, future developers and and people that want to do business uh, in this city. Because I got to be honest with you, it, it, it's kind of put a bad taste in my mouth and. And, I, and I, I'm young. I'm 39 years old. I'm going to do some development here on the coast for, for a long time to come. And uh, and uh, it, it makes you think about looking elsewhere, to be honest with you. you know? So let me let me give an important disclosure. Uh, this is really important. And I want to, in the interest of full disclosure, my son, Jordan Matthews, works for Sh- uh, Schwartz, Orgler, and Jordan. And they represent Butler, uh, the Butler Homes in this case. You have another lawyer that represents you personally. <laughs> They have absolutely nothing to do with why I asked you to join me this morning. Uh, you are here because I wanted to do a show about this important community issue. And you and I have not discussed any of this case prior to this show. People need to know that. Uh, all that I got about this, I can't, came from news media and watching videos that you posted and talking to people in the community. But uh, they, the law firm literally has nothing to do with why we're sitting here today. I just think in the spirit of full disclosure, I needed to say that. But before we get into the case, I just want to ask you, you know, let's talk about you. I want to talk about where you came from. So you, you, you grew up in Gulfport and you went to Harrison Central. Tell me about growing up in, in the community you grew up in. I grew up in, uh, in Northwood Hills. It was a, uh, you know, just a middle class community. My dad was a uh, ROTC instructor for the high school. Uh, my mom, uh, she worked for attorneys occasionally. She worked at the casino for a while. Uh, my dad was was pretty tough on us. He he raised us from a very principled perspective, uh, very kind of blue collar. You do what you say you're going to do type of thing, and uh, you know he just that that's that's the way it was. I mean, I, I had a lot of friends of all different walks of life. I mean, we 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 uh, you know we played together. We 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 had a great time together. I mean, we were we, there was every every type of person in my community that you could imagine, and and uh, I played a lot of sports growing up. Had a lot of discipline and stuff like that for sports. So. Uh, I love my life. I loved it. Let's do, let's do this, Michael. We're coming to the end of this segment, but uh, my mother actually lived in Northwood Hills for a period of time. She was she sold real estate, and uh, you know I loved it there. It was a great great community. Uh, one of the I would say you know it's sort of the foundation of Orange Grove for such a long period of time, and then of course Orange Grove continued to expand. But when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Michael Butler. I want to know more about you know where he comes from, and uh, and then we'll we'll eventually ease back into the Sands Project and talk about what the potential next steps might be. We'll see you after this break. Broadcasting safe and sound from the coastal Mississippi studios. This is Coast View View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk One Hundred Three Point One. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome 
back to Coach View. I have Michael Butler from Butler Homes with us today, and we're going to talk about the SANS project. But before we get into all of that, and uh, I did the summary at the beginning. If you missed it, you can go to our Super Talk Mississippi Facebook page and take a look at it. any of your favorite podcasts. You can go to the YouTube channel and uh, and see the beginning of this show. And I would encourage you to share it because it's it's a really important show that talks about how tough it is sometimes to make progress happen. And, uh, you know, if you make a mistake or two along the way, sometimes, man, it's hard to overcome those. I don't, and that could be on either, in, on either side. It's, uh, it can get contentious quickly. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that here shortly. So you grew up in Northwood Hills. Uh, you had a principal and father and, uh, you went to Harrison central, you know, that, that was so interesting because I went to Gupport East, but you know, back when there was a Gupport East and Harrison central always had a really good football team, good, good, you know, sports program. You were involved in sports there. Yes, sir. Yeah. I played football and soccer. Yep. So it, uh, it impacted you so much so that when you went to state, you ended up sort of, uh, you know, getting a, a master's degree in, 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 uh, sports administration. Yeah, I went to Perk first. I went to, uh, I had a little pit stop there in Wiggins and, and I played, uh, actually played soccer and football at Perk as well. And then I went to Mississippi State. Uh, my buddies went up there prior to me going and uh, I just decided to go up there. And uh, oops, I had a call come in. I'm sorry. Uh, and and I, I went to Mississippi State and, and, and stayed there until uh, I got my master's degree in 2005. So in 2005, I got a master's degree uh, in sports administration. Uh, I wanted to teach and coach. That was that was what I wanted to do for uh, for a living, you know. And and so I had all my focus there. And I just wanted my my main goal in life was to impact kids. You know, I, I had some good coaches and some bad coaches growing up, and I just wanted to kind of be a a guy that was gonna you know be a mentor to people. You know, I, I felt like I had a lot of life experience, and you know, and and uh, I just wanted to pass that on. I just I feel like I had a kind of a the right, like we said earlier, principled you know belief and. Uh, and so I, so I kind of, um, sorry, I had another call from and this is crazy, but so, so I just wanted to pass it along to the other kids, you know, as, as, as a coach. Yeah. So you're going to, so you, you came back though, and you actually got into real estate. How did, how did that evolution occur? Well, uh, if you, if anybody's aware, when you, when you graduate from school, you got a lot of debt, you know? So I had, a, I had a lot of debt. Uh, I got, I got the first two years basically paid for, but. But there was a lot of uh, student loan debt, and uh, the the money that I was being offered to be a high school teacher wasn't going to cover my student loan debt, so it was going to be kind of tough. Uh, so I talked to my brother; he was involved in the real estate business. I went and taught myself real estate on an online course, and then I moved back to the coast in 2005, uh, right before the hurricane, right before Katrina. So the plan was to get started in real estate, and then a, and then the hurricane hit, and I had absolutely no experience whatsoever in the real estate business. So. So uh, I kind of took a detour from that point. You know, I ended up, uh, I actually ended up doing storm cleanup. I had a, uh, I bought a dump truck and I went to work driving a dump truck. And I actually, <laughs> I drove the dump truck until I got pulled over by a cop before I got my CDL. My, you know, I, just kept going. I, was, I, I didn't have time. I mean, everything was closed. So you just had to, you just had to go to work. It was true devastation down here. So I actually learned how to drive a dump truck from a guy I took, uh, he worked in a dirt pit and his nickname was Dooley. And he taught me how to drive a dump truck for 30 minutes. And I, you know, this isn't the safest comment in the world, but I drove it from Jackson, Mississippi, all the way to the Mississippi Gulf coast after a 30 minute lesson. You know, I, I have a, I have a really dear friend up in the Mississippi Delta who went to almost law school and he, he bought a dump truck along the way. And 
drove it for a while, then hired a guy to drive it. And literally, that's how he that's how he paid his way through law school. It's a great story. And eventually he got into the trucking business and you learn a lot about business. You learn, you meet contractors, you, you understand, especially in the wake of Katrina, man, it was the wild West down here. I bet it was an incredible learning experience for you, wasn't it? Oh, it was, it was tremendous. I mean, you know, I, I've always had this administrative brain, but I didn't have any you know, real experience when it came to business or anything like that. So all I had was just theory in my head. And when I worked on my master's degree, it was all about theory. And I used to say, well, let's go out and do something. You know, I want to, I want to see if it actually works. But when I came down here, I worked for a lot of contractors and, and, you know, there's, there's a reason that some contractors get a, a bad, a bad reputation or a bad name, you know, because a lot of people aren't that honest. Uh, but, but I, I kind of learned that. And, and one day there was, there was a bunch of, uh, people complaining about locals, not getting enough of the contracts and things like that. And the, I think the, the major contractor was Ashbrit. So I just walked in their office and said, Hey, I'm local. Can I get a, can I get a contract? And he said, you've got to have a business with insurance. And I didn't know anything about that. I was 25 years old at the time. And, uh, I went and found a buddy who, who was had a business and insurance and we partnered up and, and we got our own contract. So we ended up with a contract just like that. And the reason I did that is because people I was working for just weren't being fair. And I felt like I could go out and be more fair to other people. Well, it was smart to go out instead of trying to figure out how to get, you know, insurance on your own, et cetera. It was smart to find a partner that brought that to the table. It's interesting that that sort of began to mold sort of a model for how you and Josh would end up ultimately getting together. But we'll come back to that in just a second. You ended up. So after that, what happened next? Well, next, uh, we, what we did was we, we had a couple trucks running and, and when you get your own contract, they basically give you demo permits and things like that. And they say, Hey, go demo this property and that property. We didn't have a machine, a, a big piece of uh, heavy equipment, an excavator. So we went and rented an excavator, brought it out there, hired a guy to do the ex or do the demos for us because nobody knew how to run the machine, <laughs> but we had the contract. <laughs> so, uh, he got his first paycheck and he quit. So I had to jump on the machine and just learn how to run it. And there's a guy there. You had a quality control guy and a quality assurance guy, one from the core and one from Ashbrit. And uh, I, I sent the whole crew home for, for a week until I learned how to run the machine. And it was a 40,000 pound uh, excavator. I just sat, sat on it. It was kind of like playing a video game until I figured yeah. it out and called them all back. I, there was a there was an interesting conversation I had a few weeks ago where I actually shared a quote and I don't remember exactly how the quote went, but it simply said something like this: that part of of setting goals, part of aspiring to be better, is sometimes biting off more than you can chew and eventually learning just figuring out how to chew it. And that's what you did. I've been doing that for, for however long, but fifteen years now, fourteen years now since I look where I am right now. I mean, I've been biting yeah. off more than I can chew ever. But you know what? That's how you get things done. You just jump in with both feet. And that's what I've always yeah. done. You know? So, uh, that's, that's interesting. So you just continue to sort of snowball your business and eventually you really started to get into construction and tell me about that evolution. Well, after the, the Katrina cleanup was done, um, I didn't have a real source of income. I would go out and find slabs to clear and things like that. You know, they had, slabs on people's property and they had increased cost of compliance money. So I would take people through that process, clear the slabs, but I knew that was ended soon. So I saw this thing in the paper and it said a busy modular home company. So obviously after everything's torn away, you have to build it all back. So I went to this modular home company uh, or this, this guy that had an ad and what basically what it was, it was a, it was a, he was a trailer park salesman. Like he sold, you know, mobile homes 
but he was trying to get me to sell modular homes by showing people mobile homes. So it really didn't work out. But I met a builder there uh, by the name of BJ Freeman, but that was from North Alabama. He was the one doing all the foundations for the for the modular homes. But I never sold one. I never even sold a modular home. But I also had the real estate license. I kept that. I met some guy from Keller Williams that was down in South Florida who had all these investors, this big investment program where they were putting how they're trying to buy houses on the coast and do the small rental assistance program for tax purposes. So the builder and I partnered up and uh, he, he basically took me under his wing and said, hey, you know how to run heavy equipment. So BJ Freeman told me to buy a mini excavator and he'd give me a, a job as a foundation contractor, you know, having never laid out a foundation before. Um, but the homes were relatively simple because they were investment homes. So there was the it was kind of like the same floor plan, you know, over and over again. But I went out to a job site. I bought a brand new mini excavator. Uh, I put it on a, a three year note, same as cash. Drove it to a job site with a uh, with a truck that I had bought from Budweiser, uh, an old Budweiser Kodiak seventy five hundred, and I pulled it out there. By the way, it didn't have air conditioner in it. And uh, anyway, I ended up at. Uh, at a job site, and he showed me how to square up a house and lay it out, and I was totally lost. And uh, it took me, it took me a long time to kind of, I say a long time, a few days to understand what was going on. And and uh, you know, it took me probably three times as long as anybody else to dig footers and things like that. But you know, finally, I got the hang of it, and I became a pretty good, pretty good foundation contractor. So, so that led pretty quickly to getting into construction, and you did that for a while, and. Eventually, you said, you know what, we, you know, with your with partner, Josh uh, Workman, you decided you could actually build, you know, you know, create your own company, Butler Homes. Uh, how long did that take for you to reach that moment? Uh, I'd say, you know, f- first I went in with, with uh, another builder I, I worked with for a while because I had a real estate company and he had a construction company. So I probably did the foundation thing for three years. Uh, and then I did, uh, I worked with the other guy for probably three years. And then, you know, I didn't want to do a bunch of homes. I'll say it was Brandon Elliott with Elliott Homes, who's a friend of mine to this day. We don't hang out as often as we used to, but but uh, he just had a different vision. He wanted to build a lot of homes, and I wanted to build, uh, you know, more high end custom homes, less homes, pay a lot, you know, just 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 focus on do do unique different things. We just had a different vision. He's a great guy, but from a business perspective, we both had a different vision, and I felt like what I needed was somebody on the financial side to help me. And that's what Josh Workman was for you. He had banking background. Uh, he knew a lot about finance. And we'll, we'll come back to talk about the two of you coming together and forming Butler Homes and then sort of what you were doing prior to getting to the Sands. We'll be back with uh, Michael Butler after this break. View on Super Talk 103.1 is brought to you by J. Allen Toyota on I 10 Exit 38 Gulfport. See all the incredible inventory at allentoyota.com. And remember, when you think Toyota, think J. Allen Toyota. He's the, he's the former president and publisher of the Sun Herald. And now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Koshi. We're having a visit with Michael Butler from Butler Homes. We're going to be talking about the Sands Project. We spent the last segment getting to know Michael a little bit better, and uh, he has an interesting background. Everyone has a story. Everyone finds their purpose in life, and it's so interesting to see what makes them tick. 
Uh, so when we went to the break, uh, you talked about sort of getting into construction and whatever, but eventually it led you back to a lifelong friend and a banker friend of yours named Josh Workman. And you guys decided to form Butler Homes and go at it building high ends, um, you know, uh, really important high end uh, uh, custom homes is what I'm trying to say. Yep. Uh, tell me about that, about that. Well, Josh was working at the bank, and uh, Josh was my roommate in college uh, at Perk, and he was my roommate at Mississippi State, and he kind of took a different path. He went to the bank, and, uh, you know, I went and did the entrepreneurial thing, but I just, I'm not the best uh, in the world with managing uh, money from a, from a paying people perspective and all that good stuff, and one of the most important things in life. Um, is making sure that people get paid on time and that you have the money available for drop from draws and things like that. And that's what Josh does. He's phenomenal at it. And I can, I can honestly say that, you know, we've always paid all subcontractors, you know, and, and, and on time too. And the only reason that we do that is because of Josh Bourbon, because if I tell people all the time, don't send me an invoice because there's no way I'm going to remember. <laughs> right. No, but Josh does that. So I can't take credit for that, but, but it's definitely, part of the reason or a big, a huge part of the reason uh, for the success of our business, you know, is, is, it's on Josh Workman. Yeah. He's not only your co co-owning <clears throat> co-owner of uh, Butler homes, but he's your chief financial officer. So, you know, you've been focused on sales and operational side of the company. I'm sure he's obviously involved in sales as well, but chief as chief uh, financial officer, you formed this, this, uh, this, this partnership and you've had you know, good success over a number of years. Then you had this opportunity and um, how did you first sort of get wind that you wanted to do this development or be involved in this development? Uh, Jennifer Gill called me. I met Jennifer uh, about 2005, uh, maybe 2006, you know, early on in the real estate business, we both had our licenses at Keller Williams uh, and I just met her and we, we just became friends and, and over the course of the years, you know, kept in touch or whatever. And, and uh, she called me. Um, and told me about this beautiful piece of property on Front Beach, and I was familiar with it. And uh, she just basically said, "Hey, look, I want you to meet with Lee Brumfield, the uh, the owner of the property, and and uh, you know we can talk and, and try to put something together because we need to do something with this property." So things evolved quickly. Um, I've heard you talk of Lee, and Lee. Many people who talk of Lee talk about him the way that you did—that he was a great mentor. He was committed to the community. He was always giving back to the community. He wasn't a guy that was out in front. You know, he was a very behind-the-scenes guy for the most part, just kind of making his mark in so many different ways. And sometimes, unfortunately, you don't find out the contributions that a man has made or a woman has made until, unfortunately, they they pass away. And then suddenly all these contributions to the community and so many different ways through their investments, through their just caring about the community and the, and the investments they make in the nonprofit community, those kind of things just poured out about Lee, didn't they? Oh yeah. There was things that I didn't even know. I mean, the morning that he, he died, uh, he was supposed to be at my office at nine 30 and I knew that he had an eight o'clock before my nine 30 meeting with him. But, um, you know, I didn't realize it was with the homes of grace. And he was doing this huge contribution or whatever it was. And I've heard different numbers, but it, it doesn't matter. But the bottom line is that's that's Lee Brumfield. So uh, Lee Brumfield didn't boast about anything. He just went out and did his thing. And 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 that like there's a lot about Lee that, you know, as close as we were that that I didn't know. And, and that was the way Lee kept it. I mean, he just did his thing. Um, but I, I tell you what, there's <laughs> I, I mean, I've said this before multiple times. There is not there are men as 
good as Lee Brumfield, but there's not one on this planet that's better than him. I'm telling you right now, that guy lived. Yeah. He lived the right way. I mean, he lived the right way, and he was a huge mentor for me. And and you know, he sent me scripture only when I asked for it. He never, he never pushed it on me or anything like that. He invited me to church one time, and I told him my church was out there at Chandelier Island. You know, and that <laughs> left me. So uh, I mean, but but he he was he was always quoting scripture. He was just a. I mean, you, you can't say enough about Lee Brumfield. He was a phenomenal human being. So let's. So you, you heard the opening of the show where I sort of went through the key moments in this journey that kind of spun it up into this moment we're in today. You know, as you and and basically, you don't dispute any of how I sort of summarize this, right? I mean, basically, the summary that I did at the beginning of the show is essentially the key points, and this is where we are. And uh, as you pointed out when I passed it to you, that it does send a, a, a not so good message about the city and. You know, so I want to ask you this, should, you know, I said at the beginning, I felt like the city should have appealed uh, the case and not doing so sent sort of a message that the city's not going to go to the mat. So do you think they should have appealed? With my limited, um, you know, knowledge on law, absolutely. I mean, if, if you give me, you know, approval for a project, and then you don't appeal the judge's decision. What does that say to me as a developer? I mean, that basically yeah. says, you know, we said you can do it, but we're not going to back it. But, but, you know, I don't understand the legality of all of it. So, I, you know, from a logical perspective, of course, you should appeal it. But maybe it was so airtight that they couldn't appeal it. But I do know that they were dealing in a very, very old code. And it was very difficult yeah. for them to, to, to navigate that code and to do something better than what was allowed in that in that 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 r1a zoning or in that zone so the fact that 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 they didn't appeal it i don't know that that says that the city didn't have my back i think that says that the city got themselves in a position that they couldn't get out of if that makes sense so yeah as, as you pointed out with the old code um of course there were 112 units there before and what you were wanting to do was a development of townhouses that would have been, you know, single family residential and sort of a zero lot line scenario. Well, you know, a really well designed uh, uh, subdivision. Um, but what could have been there if you would have sought to build these apartments or build a- apartments to begin with, without asking for, you know, vacation rentals? That kind of turned things in a in a negative way pretty quickly at the beginning. Uh, you could have probably done that and we would not even be here. I mean, and I don't want to go get bogged down on that point, but the point is if you had sought to build apartments there, they would probably be well under construction or finished by now, right? They would, they would 100% be done. And that's one point I do. I do want to make very quickly is that we could have come here, went straight to the permit office and pulled a permit for 57 apartments at the very, very beginning. And they couldn't have done anything about it. Of course, neighbors can appeal whatever they want, I guess. There's probably something in the rules that they could appeal. But that was a buy-right issue that is no different than you buying a, a single-family lot somewhere and building a house on it. So it, did, it would not yeah. have had through the code and all that stuff. And, and so we, you know, we wanted to do something better. And that's, that's what I can't wrap my head around at all. The fact that, hey, guys, we can do 57 apartments, but instead we'll do 41 beautiful homes. How about that? My perspective I should be getting a pat on the back and people shaking my hand and tell me, thank you. You know what I mean? And not to sound, you know, not to use, sound like I'm egotistical or something, but come on, we had 57 apartments and now we're offering 41 single family homes. So how does this make any sense to anybody? So you heard me say, you know, you know, there's speculation about the, why the neighbors objected, maybe confusion about the short-term rental sale. 
I can't see that that would be possible at this moment. You know, stopping traffic, keeping the the lot vacant. But what what I wonder about though is was there a defining moment along the way that made them want to dig in even more? Is there a defining moment that made this personal? Is there? Do you have a regret? I mean, if you look back on it, is there a moment where you said? dang, I wish I hadn't done that or handled it that way. Or, I mean, yeah, I I hate to, I'm not, I'm not trying to get too far beneath the covers on this thing, but I'm just curious about it. Do do you have, was there a moment like that? There were two that I can think of. The one is the the rental situation. I don't know if that's regretful or regrettable or whatever the word is, but the rental, when we tried to bring the rentals up, you know, as soon as they opposed it, we, we took it off the table. I mean, immediately, because our goal was to do something that was going to fit better within the community. That was the goal. And then the other one was just petty. Um, you know, I was when the guy uh, that my main opposition, you know, was taking pictures one day whenever they put the stop work order on. I wasn't even aware of the stop work order yet. One of my subcontractors called me and said he's over here taking pictures of us. And I saw him on the road and rolled the window down and said a few things to him that acted like I was back in high school again. So but I apologize for that. Once I, I saw him one day, I jog over here often. I stopped, I walked up to him and I, I apologized and he accepted my apology. But that other than that, I mean, I was angry. That was stupid. Um, but I, I did it and I, I don't really have any, I guess a good regret would be to say that we should have just done the apartments in the first place. I mean, then, then where yeah. would I be? Yeah. But here's, here's, here's kind of, I mean, I'm an outsider on this deal, man. I'm not, I have no involvement in this whatsoever, but my observation is this. That after Hurricane Katrina, when Andres Duani was here, the famed architect to you know, the father of new urbanism, we talked about mixed use and and uh, walkable communities and all the things that are going, especially today, actually, in the new economy, as we talk about the creative class and, and remote workers and what they need, mixed use is a big part of that. And it, what it requires, and we're coming to the end of this segment, we'll pick it up on the other side, but what it requires is for us to have an open mind and be willing to go to cities to ask for revisions and to really impress upon the cities that that these tweaks and zones and codes will help bring the city to a different place these are important that's important i know that this experience makes you not want to ever do that again because of what has transpired as a result of that but it takes visionaries to take things to a different place and if we don't do that then we will just continue to do what we've always done and sometimes that's not the best case for for coastal Mississippi. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Michael Butler. Broadcasting safe and sound from the coastal Mississippi studios. This is Coast View, View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk 103.1. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We have Michael Butler with me today. He's the uh, he's a co-owner of Butler Homes with his with his partner Josh Workman, and we're talking about the Sands Project specifically now. And what I was saying before we went to the to the uh, break that sometimes we have to be willing to push communities to consider something different, whether it's zoning changes or codes, and they ultimately will decide whether they want that different or not. In this particular case, we end up in a weird place, which is we could have got something different and better, and what we may end up with is apartments, which is what that was there before. That would not be a good place to be, I swear to you. Now, they're trying to stop the apartments now, but 
Maybe they won't. They shouldn't. Maybe they won't prevail. I don't know the legal uh, situation as it relates to their argument. But the bottom line is, you can't stop wanting to do better. I mean, that's just my encouragement of you. So as you think about this for a second, you got to consider all the possibilities here as to how you got here. And you know, there are some motivations you'll never know about. For every person that's involved in the issue, that's how many different points of view there are. So there's not just two sides. There are multiple sides based on every single person involved in this issue, both directly in this legal issue and those who just have an interest in the city. So that's, that's reality. But as, as you look forward and, and you think about, okay, now, what could be an outcome that would put this to rest and get off the apartment conversation and move back to do, building the townhomes in a way that would please people? What might that look like? Oh, I tell you what, I'd love, I'd love to build the original development of 41 units. I mean, I would absolutely love to build that original development. Um, I don't know how we get there. You know, I, I, I've tried a couple of times to meet with people individually. I, I've, I've done that several times, actually. I've done it, I've done it since. That, that's basically what I did with this entire situation where I'm coming out and publicly. I mean, I, I realize that this is not going to necessarily be any kind of legal uh, help in the legal side of things. But my goal was to bring public awareness to this so I could maybe say, hey, guys, look, this is what I wanted to do. We're, we're getting back to the corner here to where we may have to build an apartment complex. I would love to build the original 41 units. But there's some things that Lee and I talked about prior to his passing that I feel like I'm obligated to hold uh, hold true to those conversations and not necessarily go outside of what his wishes were. You know, and so that's kind of that's kind of a, a sticking point for me as well. But the situation, I mean, okay, this I'm not giving you advice, but I'm just I'm just saying my observation is simply this that uh, the the you know with every with every challenge with every problem there are dimensions, and the dimensions didn't stay static when Lee passed away. There are new dimensions that stack on that could change the scenario, and, and I would just simply say. Everyone involved in this on both sides of this battle should be open to the fact that it is not doing the city a bit of good to have a protracted you know, conflict like this that is reflecting negatively on the city. And, and beyond, beyond this case, just in general, it, it sends a terrible message. That's, a, that's my observation. And, I, you know, listen, there's a lot about this I don't know, but I can just well, tell you. I've dug in more than most people have in my, my conclusion that this is not good for the city. And well, you know, say, some, yeah. I agree. I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, a thousand percent. I agree with everything that you're saying, but when you look at it from a developer's perspective and we came in and we offered a much lower density than what was allowable. And now today, you know, they say, well, you can do luxury apartments. These people actually say this publicly and then we go say, okay, well, we'll apply for apartments then since you say we can do apartments. And then they appeal that as well. And, and the basis of their appeal was because they were trying to use the streets that we already put into that property against us in the density calculation. So in other words, they were trying to tell us, well, you got streets now, so you can't do as many as you could have when you had a blank slate. So we're set, from my perspective, I look at that and say, hey, I was trying to do something beautiful. And now not only did you not want that, you're also going to use the development that I developed for that beautiful project against me when I have to go back to the original concept that you say I was allowed to do. So, so that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. I'm open to whatever. I've been a positive person my whole life. I'm overly optimistic to a point where it's people tell me, Hey dude, I mean, I got folks telling me to stop 
more than I want to stop. You understand? And, you know, it's been, it's been a little bit of a toll on me. You know, I, I got things I got to do as far as work and stuff, and I'm, I'm focused on this development. But I want to do something beautiful. I mean, I've always wanted to do something beautiful here. I'm still willing to do it. Uh, it's just a matter of if we can get some, some heads together and we can come out with a, some kind of common ground agreement, I'll, I'll do it. But people have to be honest and people have but, to tell But my, my, uh, my thought would be that, that Michael, you should, um, and the, and the parties on the other side should be open to the possibilities and, and to undig and open your minds and, and think about the city. And there are leaders in the city who may be listening to this or who will listen to this on social media who, who can listen to it and say, you know what? I have relationships and I have experience. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to try to step in and offer whatever I can offer to help bring these parties together for the good of the city so that we can get past this. Because no, it's doing no one any good to be in this moment. And we're running out of time. But I have to tell you, man, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. I wanted people to get to know you better. I wanted to talk about the, the future in positive terms because there has to be a resolution. There has to be a resolution. We can't be in this place. I mean, and to get to a resolution... And just rely on legal pro- approaches to get there. That's not a that's not a good way to go. That's going to cost everybody too much money. It's not that's not the way to go. We need the community to come together, find a resolution, and put this behind us. And I say that on behalf of Coastal Mississippi. I mean, not just on behalf of Ocean Springs. So my so uh, let me just say this: I, I wish you all the, the good in the world, and I, I pray you have an open mind. <laughs> and. Uh, and that uh, someone does step in and get involved in this in a way that helps resolve it. So good luck to you, my friend. All right, I appreciate you, Rick. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. This has been uh, this has been Michael Butler from Butler Homes, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. View on Super Talk 103.1 is brought to you by J. Allen Toyota on I 10 Exit 38 Gulfport. See all the incredible inventory at allentoyota.com. And remember, when you think Toyota, think J. Allen Toyota. A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.